I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I create Goodwill Hunters, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I honour their leadership, stewardship and custodianship and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the second episode in our leadership series of Goodwill Hunters. I'm Rachel Mason Nunn and I have the great joy of stewarding us through these conversations on leadership. Your response to our first episode was nothing short of incredible. Thank you for listening with such a genuine willingness to reflect on your own leadership and grow as a leader. Today I speak to Jackie DeLacy. Many of you would know Jackie as the Managing Director of Apt Associates Australia. In this role, Jackie is on the boards of Apt Associates Australia and the UK, as well as being on the board of UNICEF Australia. This is Jackie's second appearance on Goodwill Hunters. The response to Jackie's first episode was huge, and for a long while it was our most downloaded episode ever. (laughs) No pressure. Today we speak about Jackie's experience growing up in Papua New Guinea and how it shaped a love for working in international development. Jackie shares the importance of adaptive leadership and mentoring, and we talk about the human skills required of authentic leaders, like vulnerability, humility, and emotional intelligence. We also discuss diversity and how efforts to promote diversity must be bold and deliberate. I hope this episode supports your leadership journey. Since announcing this series, a few of you have reached out to me to share your own work in the sphere of leadership, which I'm very grateful for. I had a great conversation recently offline with Susan Pizzati, who is doing her PhD on navigating complexity and paradox, leading strategic structural innovation in the not-for-profit sector. Wow. The research aims to provide valuable insights into the way not-for-profit leaders are tackling current and emerging challenges, with a focus on the approach to strategic structural innovation. It was really fascinating to speak with Susan about her research, and I've added some more information along with other useful resources to the show notes. Now, here is the always insightful Jackie DeLacy. Jackie, thank you for coming back for your second appearance on Goodwill Hunters. It's my pleasure to be here, Rachel. And your first episode with us was such a hit. I think for a long while it was our most downloaded episode. I'll have to check if it still is. You're clearly a fan (laughs) favourite. Thank you. Um, But today is a bit of a different conversation. Last time you were here, we talked a lot about the international development sector and some of the bigger macro level trends that we're facing in the sector. And today we're having a more um, personal conversation on leadership and your leadership journey. So to start, I know that you've managed a lot of teams in a lot of really challenging locations. What's that been like? Yeah, I think, um, well, I've learned a lot through it. I think if you want to work in international development, you've got to spend a big chunk of your life uh, living and working in developing countries. I was born in the highlands of Papua New Guinea and grew up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. So um, uh, I think that was a good grounding for me uh, in my career and probably explains why I've always wanted to work in international development. And basically it's what I've done since I graduated from university. Um, it's it's a it's wonderfully enriching because you can see the impact of your work when you're 
working in developing countries directly with teams that are working on those programs. But it's also really challenging because the context is hard and the impact of that context on your staff is very direct. So I think there's a lot of skills you have to learn as a leader working in difficult settings with staff who are living and coping with those settings um, that you you don't need to experience when you're sitting in Australia managing an Australian-based workforce. So, uh, But you get to work with wonderful people and on some very impactful programs. So lots of meaning, lots of, um, you know, quality of work, but it, it can be quite tough, yeah. The first time you did that managing a team overseas, was that a real shock to the system? Like what kind of process was it of reshaping your own leadership style to cope with different environments? So I'd had um, a couple of experiences working overseas and managing teams, but they were small teams Um, earlier on in my career. Probably the most formative uh, experience I had was in 2010. I went early 2010 and I was a mother with two young boys so I had a two-year-old and a six-year-old and we moved my partner and I and our sons moved to Indonesia and I managed Australia's aid program to Indonesia which was our biggest development program anywhere I had worked and my husband had been with me I had worked in Indonesia um, 10 years before that in a more junior role but this time I was the boss what what it was such a shock to the system, actually, because I had been managing a team of about 50 people in Canberra and, you know, it was a high-profile role. It had um, lots of policy engagement with ministers and with the senior executive. But when I went to Indonesia, suddenly I had a team of more than 200 staff. They were spread across the Indonesian archipelago. They were working on a really diverse range of programs. It was really high profile. We had a lot of ministers and prime ministers visiting and and, and going out and visiting our programs. Um, and, of course, the staff were incredibly diverse because they came from all parts of Indonesia. Um, that was a really challenging step up for me management-wise, um, in part because it was such a diverse team, but all of the skills I had used as a manager I think you can keep a lot of your management skills and tools when you're working with a group of largely similar people who are all co-located with you, even if it goes from five people to 50. When you've got more than 200 and they're geographically dispersed and they don't always, you know, English isn't always their preferred medium of communication, you have to really develop new tools. And um And I think my big learning as a leader then was to recognise what wasn't working and ask for help. So I have some great mentors that I've worked with pretty much my whole career. These are often former bosses. And when you're struggling, to be able to reach out to people you trust and whose leadership style you've really admired and talk to them about what you're grappling with and getting their ideas was incredibly impactful for me. So I, I learned a lot about how I had to change, but I also learned that you need to ask for help and be really aware of when you when it's not working perfectly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think we talk nearly enough about mentors because sometimes I, I think it can be a really uncomfortable thing for people to ask someone to be their mentor. 
like usually those relationships come about quite organically, as you say, they're ex-bosses or friends, but mentors are so valuable in helping us navigate those phases where we do need to adapt and change our leadership style, aren't they? They are. And I think um, when you've worked with people uh, that you really admire, um, I think you've got to keep investing in that relationship. So when I think about my mentors, they're not informal mentoring roles. They're not employed to be a mentor of mine. But I have kept a connection with them because they're people I cared about and whose opinions I cared about. So I, th- I think it's really important to maintain those relationships. And, it, you know, when, if we talk later about people who aspire to be on boards, a lot of that is about networking. Your pathway to leadership, particularly in board positions, is a lot about the networks you have and maintain. And it's really critical for anyone I think in our business to work hard at maintaining their networks, they're incredibly valuable, um, you know, sources of advice because you're inevitably going to be confronting issues you've never confronted before um, and getting good support around you for those challenges is really important. I can't overstate how important it's been for me. Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. And before we move off off the topic of Indonesia, it's it must have been interesting for you to watch your boys grow up in a very different developing country context to the one you grew up in, but nonetheless, a very different place than growing up in Australia. Do you think there was a desire for them to have some of the formative experiences that you'd had growing up in Papua New Guinea? Well, I, I certainly wanted them to have that. And they got, they, they do have a very good sense of the world and the diversity in the world. Uh, There is a real challenge being in, and maybe this was particularly because I was there working as a diplomat, so I was on a diplomatic passport working in the Australian Embassy, but there's a privileged lifestyle that comes with those roles that I certainly didn't. When I was a child, my dad worked as a teacher on an agriculture college and I just went to the local primary school and took the local bus and we lived in a normal house on the farm, pretty self-sufficient whereas they had quite an elite um, protected life compared to what most Indonesians in Jakarta experience. So we had to work a bit harder on letting them see the real Indonesia, not the sort of more luxurious expatriate life of Indonesia. And we did that. We travelled all over Indonesia as a family and Um, One of the great things about Indonesia is you can always get bananas and you can always get rice. So your children can always be fed. (laughs) So they have this great love of rice and bananas, which we've kept up, um, which has got us through many, many interesting and different places across the archipelago. (laughs) The two essential food groups of children, bananas and rice. (laughs) Wow. What an experience. And then you still do a lot of work in, in Papua New Guinea, I know, but in a very different capacity. And your work now um, crosses between the realms of both being a CEO and also being on boards. Um, they are two very different skill sets, though, aren't they? So how how do you work between the two? Yeah, it is. They are very, very different roles. And uh, it, it's really important for people who are most people who work in development work within the institutions that deliver development programming. Not many people sit at the board level. 
And so people are much more familiar with the sort of management responsibilities rather than the board responsibilities uh, that, that they are completely different roles. So a board is much more focused on ensuring that the organisation is going to continue to survive and thrive by ensuring it has a really good strategy for its future and really good leadership and it has appropriate systems in place to manage and mitigate its risk. So the board has to sit at that really senior level and just make sure that they've got the right strategy, the right leadership and the right systems, as well as they're financially uh, in a financially robust place. There is a lot of legislative requirements on board members and a lot of personal risk you take being a board member. Um, you, you, you're exposed to a lot of potential liabilities, but you operate at a very high level. And it is really important that boards don't get into managing an institution. That is what the CEO and the executive team are there for. Um, so I, I sit on a range of different boards. So I sit on an uh, I've got, I'm on currently on three boards. So one is with UNICEF Australia, for which I have no management responsibility at all, which is really great. And but I manage, so I sit on that board, but I also chair the program subcommittee of that organization, which is a charity. And I do that pro bono with a bunch of other incredibly talented board members with very diverse backgrounds. I'm also chair of the APT Australia board and my title is managing director, which means I have a dual role as both on the board and as CEO of the organisation. And that is complex to manage those two. But I also am chair of the APT Britain board for which I'm not, you know, I don't directly work on the APT Britain program. So I think you've just got to really understand what those different roles are and you get better with it over time, but you don't want to blur them. No, and I can't imagine how complex that would be. But but clearly it's clearly it's working well for you. Um, I mean, was that a deliberate decision to start your board career, or did that happen by accident? No, it wasn't deliberate at all. I think the um, the benefit of being a board member is you can work on a range of different institutions at the same time. So bring your experience to bear on multiple institutions rather than just one. So I think that's the main opportunity and benefit of being a board member rather than as a senior executive, where you can really only work on one institution. And that cross-learning you get by working on different boards has been really powerful for me. Um, so I've learned a lot sitting on different boards. It wasn't something I deliberately sought. Um, so what I got invited onto the UNICEF board, I was recommended by someone who had occupied the board position prior to me who had recommended my name to the chair. Um, and that, so, so I didn't know what I was doing, but, you know, I was willing to give it a red hot go and I had a great board and I've learned a lot since I've been there and I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, but then, I mean, obviously I was, as my board experience grew, my global CEO asked me to chair the Australia board. And because I did a good job chairing that, she asked me to chair the App Britain board. So now I do both of those for the institution. But it wasn't something I actively sought. I did do when I um, when it was clear I was going to be asked to go on to the board. And again, I would recommend this. I did the AICD 
course on, on, on board governance. And you don't necessarily have to do the AICD course, but I think anyone who aspires to be a board member, there are some really good training programs that help you understand what your role is and what the skills you need to operate at a board level, which I'd, I couldn't do it. I couldn't have done these roles without that training. So I'd highly recommend it. I did the Foundations of Directorship course recently and hoping to do the full AICD course soon. And it was so valuable. And I think the biggest thing that I was struck by was the legal components of board directorship. I I, I think a lot of the general public, having not delved into it, wouldn't have an appreciation of the liabilities associated with board roles. Yeah, look, I've been approached to join other boards since, um, you know, in the recent years, and I've said no, not because I wasn't interested, but if you're going to do it, you have to do it really, really well, and it takes a lot of time because you do have real responsibilities. So, again, I think if you're interested in doing it, be really mindful of what the requirements are, and and you, you have stewardship of a whole institution, so you need to really allocate the time to do it very well. Uh, they're not they're not they are heavy lifts in my experience even if they're really competently run organizations what do you think are the biggest skills that that you're bringing well that you brought initially to the apt australia board that led you to be invited onto the apt britain board what what are those core skills oh that's a good question um Look, I think you've got to be able to, for Australia and the Australia and Britain opportunities, I think part of it was, or largely, it's I can run a really good meeting. <laughs> it's a real skill to be able to move through really deep, dense agendas efficiently, make sure the information coming to the board members is strategic and covers the critical issues, make sure that all board members get an opportunity to have a voice and it's an inclusive discussion and that you don't, um, you're very clear about what you've agreed on and what you have made decisions on and if there is follow-up work to do that that is properly decided and minuted. The other thing you really need to do is understand the, the legal obligations of boards and making sure the board's members get the information to be able to discharge those um, obligations. So, you know, I think that's all part of why I was invited on, uh, but but I, I have got very good at <laughs> chairing meetings and that's a, that is a really important skill you have to develop, yeah. Oh, such an important skill, being able to run a good meeting. Not everyone can do that. <laughs> All those years in government, who knew it would be so valuable? But, you know, that is, I did learn a lot in government around chairing meetings. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think the other interesting thing is that all all of those boards are connected to the international development sector. And I know that you often um, are able to speak on behalf of the sector and have a real appreciation for the, the issues that, that um, development is collectively facing, what do you think those issues are and how do you see leaders managing them? Yeah, I mean, my passion is international development. So as I said earlier, it's the only sector I've really worked in since I graduated from university. So, and I love it. I'm st- it's still 
incredibly interesting and engaging. So I just see no reason to move beyond that sector and there's more than enough work to do within it. So I, I think a lot of the, I think people from outside the sector can still can really contribute to international development. So the UNICEF board I'm on has a really diverse range of people at, with very different backgrounds, some of whom have never worked on international development, but they are able to make really valuable contributions to the strategic directions of UNICEF. So um, I don't think you have to have a development background to be a good contributor to the governance of development institutions, but it's helpful to have some board members who do. So um, understanding what your role on the board is important and, and certainly my background in program delivery and understanding the context in which these organisations are operating and the complexities of operating in those contexts is an asset on a board. But there are other assets that others bring um, which are broader. So I, I would say that. I think there are some particular things about development institutions that boards and leaders need to be really aware of. So first of all, you do have incredibly diverse staff um, who come from different backgrounds and they are not so you know how how corporate policies how um you know the 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 operation of an organization will work when you have people with very diverse backgrounds education levels um use of english um or familiar many of our staff in apt i work with english is their third or fourth language right so if everything goes out only in written form in English, it's really limiting for that for that staff cohort. So how do you in how do you ensure that an organisation can run with diverse staff is really important, and creating a culture in which diverse staff can thrive. Because even if you move to a meetings culture, some cultures are very confident and, and able to speak really well. But for example, in Papua New Guinea, a lot of the Papua New Guinean more men and women I work with, they're, they're never going to be the first to speak in a meeting and they'll often not voice their views in a formal meeting where there's lots of contested voices. You'll have to talk to them afterwards to really understand what's going on. So I think, I think from a governance perspective, if you're trying to look at how an organisation is implementing a policy or thinking about risk management, understanding how diversity impacts on how organisations run is important. I also think, um, you know, our staff are working in really challenging places. So when COVID um, uh, first uh, hit us all and there was a strong move to remote working, working from home, that was really easy to do in Australia. But if you're a, a staff member in Port Moresby, um, many of our staff in PNG did not have home offices set up. They couldn't get internet at home. We could give them a computer but it just wasn't possible for them to do their work um, effectively from home. They're just not set up. In, you know, they, they do not have the physical infrastructure to do that well. Or cultural norms. We have um, female staff members in Nepal who said as soon as they were working from home, the expectation was they would resume doing all of the cooking and cleaning for the broad, you know, the extended family, and they were not allowed the space to continue to work even from home where they had the internet. So I think we need to understand that if we want to be able to govern institutions in our sector. I think the other thing that's really um, sort of unique about, well, one of the characteristics that's particular about the development sector is people are in it for the passion for the work, right? So you get staff, they're very mission-driven, very committed to their work. 
It means that there's lots of strength in that, but there are also some potential weaknesses. Staff can get burned out really quickly. People can overwork, not take breaks. And people can also be less open to criticism because they're true believers in their work. So they they want to believe everything they're doing is working well. And that sort of critical eye over whether whether the programs you're managing are actually having the intended impact can sometimes be challenging for people in our sector. So creating that openness to um, constructive criticism, I think, is a particular is 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 something we all need to continue to foster. So I think for boards having an understanding of some of the characteristics of the development sector is really important. There are also some very big risks um, because we work with vulnerable communities. Um, when you think about sexual exploitation and harassment and child protection issues, I mean, they are really profound risks in our sector because we're working with communities that are very vulnerable to exploitation and anyone working in this sector needs to be absolutely have their eye on those risks um, all the time. Mm. Mm. As you were explaining the challenges of leadership in this sector, I was reminded how so many of them come back to an ability to connect with people, like emotional intelligence and empathy um, are so essential for any leadership role, but especially in the development sector where, as you say, people's motivations are very different and tend to be a motivation for social justice and achieving change. And people's backgrounds are incredibly different. And there is, I would say, much more diversity in this sector than many others. And collectively what that requires is those soft skills of empathy and emotional intelligence and compassion and all of those things, which really aren't soft at all. They're essential, right? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm a people person, so I really do try and be a leader that people can identify with. And, I mean, this is the first, you know, I now have, you know, 850 staff, you know, at at every point in your career, you get more staff. And I think the first challenge I have in any new role um, is making sure people feel a sense of connectedness to me. Uh, And they do need to get a sense of who you are and what your values are and what you stand for. And, and I think we also need to build a culture in which anyone in an organisation feels that they could go to the CEO and raise an issue if they needed to. Uh, so that I want to create a culture in which any staff member at APT feels that if they needed to talk to me, they would trust me enough to talk to me if they had a big issue that they wanted to raise. And they're not going to do that if they don't know you and they don't trust you. Now, I mean, I, I just think you win... <laughs> If, if you can engage people um, with a level of humility, I mean, I don't think bosses are there to get people to work for them. I actually think bosses are there to work for their people, right? A lot of our role is about creating an environment in which they can do their work. A lot of my day is removing obstacles so my staff can do the valuable work that they need to do. But if But the other critical part of being a leader is actually being able to do Um, articulate a vision of where you're taking your organisation that every individual can connect with and that glues them all together for the purposes, you know, the day-to-day work and gets you through the hard times because there will be hard times. So, and it's hard to bring people with you on a vision if they don't like you, if they don't know you, if they can't connect to you. 
you have to do that differently when you've got 800 staff compared to 50 staff or 200 staff, but it's still a really critical part of that role. Um, so when I'm visiting my teams, for example, in the field, I can't visit everybody, right? Uh, I can't meet every staff member that I have, but I will deliberately have sessions, for example, with um, local staff or women's groups or, you know, I, there will be people, um, my teams, my senior teams will have picked individuals that they think are high-performing potential local staffs often women, so I'll go and have a coffee with them. So I think just making sure you're deliberately creating space for different groups of staff to be able to hear directly because you, you, you can't see everyone all the time. Um, but I also do induction courses for staff. I try and have coffees with, um, like when I, a lot of, I've got about 70 staff in Brisbane. When I go up to Brisbane, I always have a coffee with all of our new starters just to connect to them so they know who I am. You've got to find ways to still be personable and approachable, I think. Mm, yes. It's so, I completely agree. I think for people to to like you, to know you, to connect with you, it does require a level of vulnerability and openness that more traditional, say, leadership didn't lend itself to. And I think that's changed a lot. I think Brene Brown's written about seven books on vulnerability and leadership now, but that's the hard part, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm quite, um, I mean, I, it, it helps to be in my fifties, to be honest, I'm much less anxious about, uh, I'm kinder to myself about the decisions I take and the mistakes I make, but I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I'll admit to people when I don't know the answer to something, I'm always saying I'm never the smartest person in the room. I mean, I think the best job of a leader is to employ much smarter people around you um, and give them the credibility for the work that they do. Uh, but, you know, people can tell when you're not across something. So you're better off admitting it. Uh, they can tell when you're struggling with something. So you're better off just saying it up front. So, for example, during the COVID um, pandemic and a lot of our international staff, we had to move out of country before borders closed. People were very anxious about knowing whether they'd continue to have jobs, whether they, they could still do their job if they went home to, you know, we had staff returning to Africa and Eastern Europe and places like that and saying, can I still work in Indonesia or Papua New Guinea if I'm there? And I would just say, I don't know. I don't know, but it's really critical. We don't know what's happening with borders and you've got to be home with your family because if you get cut off from that, that will be catastrophic. So admitting what you don't know, even if they're really important issues, I think you get credit for that as long as you keep following up and trying to answer the questions. But no one's perfect. Um, so I think leaders showing vulnerability around where their gaps of knowledge are or where they've made mistakes just creates a safe environment for other people to be themselves too because we're human, right? We're human, exactly. And I think the other thing that is helping with this is seeing more diversity in leadership. So I think it's one thing that, that there already is so much inherent diversity in the international development sector globally, but also that organisations are making a really concerted effort to promote diversity at all levels, but including all the way up through the leadership pipeline. That's the last point I wanted to ask you about is how can leaders support more diversity? You have to do it really deliberately. It's not going to happen by accident. Um, so APTA's done a phenomenal job around gender, gender equality. 
we, um, you know, we have no gender pay gap globally, and that includes all of our staff working in developing countries. I have as many female team leaders as male team leaders. We have, you know, equal number of male, female staff at a lot of nearly all levels of the organisation. We do um, sort of regression analysis on what's driving gender pay gaps and looking at future trends in our business in order to get ahead of it. So I think on the gender side, we have done a good job, but only because we have very deliberately invested in a whole range of targets and tools and metrics that enable us to make progress. Where we haven't done as well is on um, ethnic diversity and even disability accessibility in our organisation. So we have started doing that much more seriously. So collecting baseline data to understand the mix of our staff um, by both racial identity um, and, and other characteristics in order to be able to track our performance. We will be setting ourselves goals. We have started in different places. Um, and we've just put in a new, I know it's a bit, it's not exciting, but we've just put in a new human resource management system, which will enable us to track career progress for staff with different racial identities. I mean, it's really important you understand the metrics of what's happening in your organisation, who is getting promoted, who is who is putting their hand up for promotion, um, how many of our promotions are coming in from outside. If you actually want to uh, create meaningful career paths for people. You, there's a lot of detailed analysis you need to, to do to understand what's happening and constantly be revising your policies and approaches in order to achieve your diversity targets. It's never enough just to attract talent in. It's also about retention, it's promotion, it's opportunities um, for staff to grow and, and, and gain experience. It's about... Um, training and mentorship programs, but there's a there's a lot of different things that go into it. But my my single most important advice is you're not going to do it by accident. You need to set goals and you need to track your data and you need to understand what is and isn't working and just keep trying because um, it's very easy to just continue to do what we do now, but it's not good enough. Mm. Talent is not defined by race and it's not defined by gender. So if you don't have equality in your representation in senior roles you're doing something wrong as a company Mm, that's a powerful message and a good note to finish on thank you jackie it's my pleasure i hope you enjoyed the episode remember i always pop some resources in the show notes that you might find interesting i'll see you next week for another conversation on leadership